Aloha, and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, blow the dust off of them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. My name's Tom Galley, and joining me today, we've got Tony Pasquale. Thanks, Tom. And today we are reading Thieves' World, an anthology book by, uh, well, edited at least by uh, Robert Lynn Asprin, a choice from my youth. And uh, and important to say up front, I think that this is a shared world anthology, not just a just any old anthology. So all the all the authors here are creating in a in a shared mythos with uh, stock characters that they repeat throughout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I think it might be worthy of mentioning that uh, we've made this distinction before, but just because it's a favorite book does not actually mean it is a good book. Uh, and I think this holds up as an example of that. It, it's uh, like a many anthologies. I think it's really mixed. I think there were there were stories in here that I enjoyed and stories that I did not. And, uh, and I thought it would be more consistent with a shared world, but no, it was... It was kind of all over the it place. It was wildly inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it does not, my recollection uh, is that the books themselves, um, the the first two are the pinnacle um, of the dozen in the original series. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's my recollection anyway. We, we don't need to unearth that to see if it holds true or not. Well, one of my questions for you was going to be, because uh, this is going to apply to next... Um, next month also is is this book your favorite because it's your favorite or because the series is your favorite is this Um, an example of a favorite series or is it a book that stands on its own as a favorite you know i I think it is certainly an example of a a series that's a favorite um were i to pick a favorite book from within the series i don't know if it would be this one or the second one um, mm-hmm. But again, to, to my recollection, after that, um, you know, books three through twelve would not. Be I guess favorites. I mean something a little bit different, like uh, like Star Trek. We talked about Star mm-hmm. Trek in the past, and Star Trek is a is a favorite TV show. But if you examine any one hour of Star Trek, does it rise to the level of one of your favorite hours of right, anything, right. or is it the accumulation of of hours of Star Trek that add up into something more? Than the individual episodes. I, I suppose this is a similar thing. Probably Thieves' World as a uh, as a body of work uh, is more of a favorite to me. Yeah, um, that was my suspicion. <laughs> yeah, re- reading over this, there were a couple of stories that did nothing for me. There were a couple of stories that generally irk me, um, and then you know the the others all fall into various degrees of enjoyment. Yeah, uh, I was. You know, there's only a handful of uh, of authors here that I recognize. Yeah, it, um, uh, you know, and, and again, my recollection when I pulled this out of memory said, "Hey, let's do Thieves' World," was that it had had some really A list writers in it. Um, and then looking yeah. over the list of names attached to this thing, um, well, they certainly come from A list. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to disrespect anyone that's on there, you know, but these aren't aren't top caliber, top tier writers for the most part. There, there are some names in here, um, and it's it's weird. The table of contents doesn't include them. Yeah, uh, John Brunner is a significant name. Paul Anderson Paul is a Anderson. significant name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Haldeman, one of my favorite writers, actually, is really? a significant name. Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, uh, less so, and sort of a problematic author these days, um, or at the time, I would say, um, but not known. Uh, yeah, and it, and it turns out interestingly that uh, 
that the stories by the people whose names I did recognize and was expecting to enjoy were the ones that I actually kind of enjoyed the least. And the ones by the people I hadn't read were the ones I enjoyed more. Yep. Marion Zimmer Bradley, in fact, was one of my favorite stories. So, uh, and That's I think the cool. second one was uh, Murtis by Kristen DeWeese, who I still have no idea who that is. Oh, your second favorite. I was going to say, isn't that, was it the second story? But okay. Second favorite, second yeah, favorite. yeah. Gotcha. Second to last, actually. Yeah, gotcha. it was It was nice to have those two stories at the end um, because the beginning was tough going. <laughs> it's like, oh, my goodness. Well, I'm just taking a story at a time, do you think, or – uh, any, any, how you want to do it. I, I got to admit that a lot of these stories went right out of my head as soon as I finished reading yeah, them. Well, yeah. I can st well, let's stick with stuff that stuck with us then. Um, so introduction, the, the opening story, not the actual introduction to the book, but the first chapter in the book is labeled mm -hmm. introduction. It's a short story uncredited by Robert Lynn Asprin. Um, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, just the fact that this this is a story that's devoted to nothing except exposition, and yeah. yet he has two beautiful vehicles to conceal it from being blatant exposition, right? We start with Hakim, the storyteller, Hakim, whatever his, his name is. Mm -hmm. um, a street urchin gives him a couple of copper coins and asks him to tell about the founding of Sanctuary. So we get the entire history of Sanctuary as a place in the context of a storyteller doing his bit. Yes. And then the next thing that happens, right, we're inside the palace and the leader of the hellhounds is now giving a military briefing to the rest of his troop. So in that context, again, we have exposition, but it's being provided with a, a legitimate um, background, a legitimate framework. And this is where we find out the structure of the city, the different areas, the different types of people we'll find in each of the areas. It's a very, it's a very functional story, but it's also a fun one. I, I just have a soft spot for stories about stories. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of Neil Gaiman territory, but uh, it's good to see other people play in that arena as well. Uh, and and this is this is fun. This is actually this is in my maybe in my top three or four of the of the collection yeah. here. Well, it certainly starts strong because it's a fun story. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it accomplishes what it needs to accomplish, and it does so in I felt like a pretty clever way. Yeah. Uh, he he's like, all right, my job is to tell is is to expose. You know, expo is that. When you're providing exposition, are you exposing? I don't think you're exposing. Expositing, perhaps? <laughs> expositing. There we go. Yeah. My job is to exposit. How shall I do this without, you know, yeah. ooh, here's a great idea. I'll have a character who's a storyteller. Yes. Another character who has to give a briefing. Voila. I also, I mean, just as an aside, I, I love a world where people are, street urchins are so hungry for story that they will part with their one of their few copper coins. To hear a story. Indeed. It's like, I could and buy the story bread with that this. they want is history. Yes. You know, it's not something fantastic. It's, yeah. it's history. That's amazing. That's always a great universe. Um, one of the things I appreciate about the, like the Elder Scrolls, the, I don't know if you play those games, Skyrim, Oblivion, mm -hmm. Morrowind, that the, the lore of the universe is contained in books and those books have value beyond what's printed in them. They actually like level up your character. Reading a book levels up your character mm -hmm. in that universe. It's like, yes, that's how it is <laughs> in is real life. <laughs> uh, moving on. Sentences of Death by John Bruner. Um, we're introduced to Enos Yorl, who makes several appearances throughout the book. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I felt this one was kind of a forgettable story. Uh, yeah. Although, okay. What is this character's name? I'm trying to find it here. That seems like that that character's name is so odd that it seems like it must be an anagram or a reverse thing mm -hmm. or some sort of construction. Uh, if you put it backwards, I can't find it, unfortunately. 
Um, but if you put it backwards, it's something like Leroy something. Yorl becomes Elroy or Elroy. Elroy Sane? Elroy, Elroy Sane. Yes, Elroy yeah. Sane. That just seems like it has to be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> well, and this this is fun, right? Because we're in this story, right? He his body is constantly shifting. Yes. Um, and we also introduced to the delightful quirk that his house is, you know, he's a downwinder, except when it's not. Yeah. Right. The house itself will occasionally move. So we've we've got these couple of quirks, and then we see later in the sort series how different authors handle them, and it's you know not consistent. Yeah. Um, but. This is something that's actually addressed in the actual preface to the book, that uh, because you have different characters exploring different points of view, there's no reason there should be consistency. Exactly. Which I kind of felt was a cheat. Um, I, I think that's legit. Uh, I think it's, it's quasi-legit. <laughs> but the, the degree to which the, uh, the liberties are taken, I think, yeah. is, uh, well, it stretches credulity. One of the things I like, and it's hard to know what to attribute to the individual story or to the shared world that is created. I, I don't sure how much of that credit of that goes to Aspirin himself. But the significance of magicians in this universe is also something that really appealed to me. Uh, they're not just like, it's not like the D&D world where you just have like magic users littering the carpet. Uh, there's a huge, heavy price to be paid. Mm -hmm. uh, to anyone who uses magic and the people who get to that pinnacle are, you know, people to be reckoned with. They are, they are rare and extremely powerful and they pay a heavy price, uh, as, yep. as, uh, Yorl does with his never the same person or appearance twice. Yeah. Yeah. Gods also do walk the earth. Yes. Uh, in sanctuary. Uh, let's see, Face of Chaos by Lynn Abbey, um, another one that didn't do much for me, although this is, in fact, where we see the, the idea that the gods are not only, you know, observed, but uh, it's certainly believed that they are active. Uh, and further in the series, we find out this is true. The gods are actually walking around, doing things, uh, and the people in Sanctuary sometimes get caught up in those. One of my favorite characters that we didn't get around to meeting from the overall series uh Finds himself in that situation. Yeah. I do not remember much about this story at all. Um, I have no notes on it. It's about the, the they're building a new <laughs> temple to one of the new gods. Oh, yeah, um, that was it. The priests of the old gods are trying to foul up its consecration. Right. Yeah, just weirdness. This was connected to another story because there's someone who rescues someone who's going to be sacrificed to the temple. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's, but that's a different story. Well, actually, somebody is going to be sacrificed to the temple here, too, but somebody who's already dead, it turns out. Ah, yes. They get rescued in the other story. Oh, spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. Then <laughs> we come to Paul Anderson's The Gate of the Flying Knives. Now, you know, I didn't remember a whole lot about this book, um, but there are things I did remember about characters I liked, and there are things I remembered that really annoyed me at the time. And this story mm -hmm. is one of the ones that really annoyed me at the time. Interesting. Why did it annoy you? <laughs> so there's a, uh, there's a, a moment in there, right? Um, Cap and Vera were introduced to him. I don't think we introduced to him. I think we met him earlier, but this is the first time he really gets any page time. Um, but he's entertaining. He's, he's flirting with this girl by showing her how you can take a strip of paper and cut it in half and have it interlocked and yes. then twist it so that it has only one side and other feats of geometry. Yes. I'm like, what are these other feats of geometry? You've listed the only two that exist <laughs> and you're going to pretend he's going to spend an entire night wooing the woman with these. And the only reason it gets mentioned is that in the end, 
he destroys a magic portal, which happens to be printed on a piece of, piece of parchment by twisting it around and sticking the ends together, forming a yeah. Mobius strip. Yes. Which, you know, everybody knows that's how you destroy a magic part. <laughs> Come on! That has got to be the weakest setup to the weakest resolution that that's is fascinating possible in the because story. that's the one aspect of the story that I actually liked. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, and that and stood out to me also. And it's like, wow, that's okay. I don't like this story at all. Uh, Paul Anderson's writing style is just... just heavily contrived and, and artificial and just bogged down in mm. in writing as opposed to just telling the story. There were air uh, quotes there. I know y'all couldn't <laughs> see it in the audience, but there were air quotes there around writing. But uh, but the idea that, and I, you know, I was a math major as an undergrad, so I appreciate math. Uh, and the idea that math and magic are somehow linked, that there's this... Um, you know, as they were in our world, there was this sort of, uh, sort of ambivalence between chemistry and alchemy. Um, and alchemy was magic and chemistry was science. Uh, but the early explorers didn't really draw a hard line between the two. There was a lot of, there was a lot of overlap. And Newton, who gave us, uh, you know, a lot of the basis of our current classical physics plus calculus, was big time into alchemy. Uh, he thought that was something that was worth his study. So the idea that, that math could be something associated with magic or part of the study of magic uh, was really cool. And these, these little demonstrations of math were a really fun way to, to make that visual and bring it to life. You know, that someone could perform mm -hmm. a trick without having to learn slights or sacrifice their appearance or something just by, by learning the secret. Uh, and as secrets go, those are pretty cool secrets. You know, a lot of people don't know those secrets today. People know uh, the Mobius strip, but they don't know the linking rings and all that other sort of variations on it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I like that. And then as a way to, to bring it back and destroy the portal, if you have a gate... It's, you know, you have two sides of a thing, and on one side it's one universe, and the other side is the other universe, and you turn that thing into something that only has one side, where did the... There's only room for one universe now. Where does the other one go? Well, yeah, so. except you're not really doing that, right? You know, when you take a strip of paper and you twist it and you put the two ends together and you put your sticky tape on it so that they stay, you haven't actually created a one-sided object. It's still a two-sided object that you've taped the ends together, you know? Well, except that it's not. It's, it's legitimately one-sided. Uh, like, you can... I don't know how much you've played with Mobius strips, but if you take a, a pen and you draw on it, you know, you're going to connect back drawing on both sides of that right. paper, yeah. But if you take a pin on the strip of paper and you draw down one side and then you turn it into a Mobius strip, it doesn't change the fact that there's a distinct area where there is pin and there's a distinct area where there is That's not true. pin. Well, we don't know how the magic works. Well, this, this is true. I, I, I always <laughs> felt, in part, I felt that it was a stretch that the that doing that simple thing would destroy the the um, portal. But it just offended me that in order <laughs> for him to set that up, he pretended that Captain Vera had this litany of cool <laughs> tricks of which he could name exactly two. Yeah. If he'd even named a third one, I think I might have taken less umbrage. But Interesting. Who knows? I just, I remember that irritating me when I first read this, and this would have been in high school. Um, and yeah, it's I, still great. <laughs> for me, it's, it's, uh, it works out even as a reference to one of my fantasy, favorite fantasy novels of all time, which we may come to in this show at some point. Uh, we've already done Highland, though, is Glory Road. Mm -hmm. And have you read Glory Road? It has been quite a while, but okay. I feel certain that I have. There's a, there's a bit where the hero, Oscar, he's Oscar, uh, defeats uh, Igly, the golem, by uh, shoving his foot in his mouth. 
And then he keeps shoving until his whole leg is in his mouth. And then he puts the other foot in there and he keeps shoving and shoving and shoving until he ends up rolling him up into a ball and he gets smaller and smaller and smaller until he disappears. So he forces Igly to eat himself entirely. <laughs> and, uh, and the woman who's with him says, oh, congratulations. I didn't know you were a geometer. Uh, <laughs> a geometer. Okay. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I do like the idea that math could be magic in that yeah. way. Like you talked about. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Clash of opinions there. Indeed. On the one notable element of the story. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was a memorable element, It right? certainly was. It certainly was that. All right. Although I did have, there's a quote here uh, that I singled out. I don't like most of his writing, but I did like this. Behold where I come from that no man can flee his weird. Yeah, that stood out to me. That's delightful. I like weird used in that way. Yes. Your thing that makes you peculiar, and it's going to haunt you. You can't escape it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next up, we had uh, Shadow Spawn by Andrew Offutt. This is a story I really, really wanted to like. I mean, <clears throat> I really, really, really wanted to like, because Shadow Spawn is one of my favorite recurring characters throughout the entire series. Wow, did this just not give him a personality? It, he seemed too much like a whatever the male equivalent of a Mary Sue is. It's like, we're going to make this guy as cool as possible, but there's actually nothing notable about him. Yep. And just like lard him up with, with cool things and then like a cool name. Ooh, Shadow Spawn. Yep. And he's like a cool cat <clears throat> burglar. He's yeah. wearing 40 pounds of <laughs> mail and blades and he's a bravo, except he's stealthy and... yeah. Creeps in the shadows. You know, they, they completely fail to give him an identity. Yeah. Um, which his duration in the in the book, he develops an identity, which is lovely. Um, and he gets handled um, terribly by some of the writers. Again, if we were to get farther in this series, there are other instances oh, of that's a shame. me hating things they did to him. I was going to say, that's one of the things where you can appreciate a story for what it sets up in the future. Yeah. If you're already aware of the future, you're just like, ah, oh, this isn't a great story in of itself, but this is our first introduction to Shadow Spawn, and this is where we see that he got the whatever-whatever, and da-da-da-da. Yeah, it's like, yeah. You know, honestly, but, I, I wonder, <laughs> I don't remember, um, what I thought of this story the first time I read this book. Interesting. Um, because now, you know, in, in subsequent readings, and certainly now, it's it's I read it with anticipation, because yeah. it's like, I know who Shadow Spawn is going to become. Yeah. I know how important Shadow Spawn is going to be to the series. All right, before we move on actually to the next story, uh, what prompted you to pick up this book in the first place? Did you just grab it because you were in high school and it was a book and it was there? Or did you someone recommend it? Or did you like drawn to, you playing D&D at the time? Well, I did play D&D at the time. Um, I honestly don't know if it was just, you know, I've got that circle of friends that you have similar tastes in literature and you mm -hmm. all end up reading the same books. And, yeah. you know, somebody stumbles on it first and then everybody is reading it. Uh, I imagine it probably went something like that. The little town that I grew up in, uh, there was one bookstore, Marianne's Bookstore. <laughs> um, my, my small town as well. Yep. And, you know, when I was much, you know, when I was a kid, talking grade school years, I would go in there and I would haunt the fantasy science fiction section, both rows of it. Yeah, both um, rows. <laughs> um, mainly I was looking for, a, <laughs> exactly, mainly I was looking for a new Star Trek book to come out. Yeah. You know, so if, if something new appeared at Marianne's bookstore, I was very likely to grab it up simply because it was a new book in that section. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, libraries, but the, the lab school I went to, the uh, science fiction and fantasy section was not... Notable again, it might have had an entire shelf, hmm. um, you know, in high school. I guess we probably had a library. Uh, you must have had a library. <laughs> how, how could they ban books from the library if you didn't have a library? Yeah, indeed. Um, 
but uh, yeah, by this time we're we're able to stretch our legs and go down to the to the metropolis of Monroe, thirty miles down the road. <laughs> it actually had a mall, uh, you know, and in that mall it had a bookstore. But it was one of the the early big names, Walden Books, perhaps. Um, I don't remember Walden Books ever being big bookstores. B. Dalton was bigger. Well, maybe Wal. I don't know. The ones the ones here in Hawaii were always this Walden's were always kind of yeah, small. Maybe it was a regional thing, but I think that at least you know, for by my standards, Walden was a big bookstore. All right. Um, but you know, and they had oh my god, shelves um, <laughs> of these books, right? So that's that's when things really started to open up. Um, so I don't know if I was just going through and, and picked that book because it had a really cool name and a really cool title, or if this came out of that circle of friends. I honestly don't remember. Interesting. I'm surprised that I didn't encounter this in high school because I was playing a lot of D&D and, you know, everyone who played D&D was obsessed with thieves. Well, they actually made so. a role-playing game based on this, I think Chaosium. Oh, um, and I remember playing that um, in late high school, that. early college. Huh. Um, it wasn't a particularly well-done game, but yeah. like, you know, many of these, you know, spawns, and short-lived RPGs. I even read some of Aspirin's other books. He has a myth series, which is mm -hmm. not a shared world. It's just him, I think. I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've read those. Uh, Another Fine Myth, Myth Adventures, those books. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I was surprised this one wasn't on my... I mean, I heard of it. I'd heard of it, but I'm surprised I hadn't read it before. Yep. Yeah. Well, the original series ran for a dozen books, um, and then there were several spinoffs, and then there was actually a resurrection. Um, so there's probably something close to 30 books total. Oh, my um, goodness. In the, that is a lot of books. In the universe, Yeah. And you've read the original series. I've read the original series. And okay. By the time I got to the end of the original series, I, I was somewhat disillusioned with it. So <laughs> that when, you know, years later when it came to my attention that there were others, it didn't compel me to pursue them. Sure. You might have aged out of the demo by then too. Might have. <laughs> so coming up next, we had The Price of Doing Business by Robert Lynn Asprin. And this one just ticked me off. Uh-oh. Oh, and it was Aspirin himself. It's not like he, I can even blame another <laughs> author for doing this this dirty. We brushed up against the character of Jubal a couple of times. Not himself, but his his thugs walking the street in their blue hawk masks. Mm -hmm. We know there's this shadowy figure, Jubal, and we know that he's he's some sort of power broker. And then we get a story about Jubal, and we find out his background and his climb to power and, and the breadth of his empire, and we kill him. <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you take that and take such a nice character and write a story for no other purpose than to introduce us to something you're going to take away? That's annoying. Yep. That's like that's like the Darth Maul in the Star Wars prequels. I mean, it's just what a what a wasted opportunity. Yep. And it's not the only time they do it in this book. You know, the very next story, Blood Brothers, they take away one thumb from us. Mm. You know. One thumb, the, var the bartender from the Vulgar Unicorn, which, again, we've brushed up against him a couple of times. He gets mentioned in a couple of stories, but here he gets a story of his own. And it turns out he's a marvelously complex character, right? He's living a double life, both as a noble and as a peasant bartender, or I don't guess peasant, but brigand bartender. He has a miraculously pricey enchantment laid on himself to protect his life. And just because wizards are dicks, they decide to kill him <laughs> with himself. Yep. I don't know. This this was another one. It's like, but it's such a good character. It could have, it could have, should have, would have. So in the second book, they replaced, and the second book is titled Tales of the Vulgar Unicorn. All right. A lot of it centers around that bar. Yeah. His replacement is two thumbs. The new bartender <laughs> for the Vulgar Unicorn is two thumbs. Who I has do like no that. no personality whatsoever. Oh, that's a shame. He has simply a label, right? 
But someone who they call two thumbs because he has two thumbs and the previous bartender had one, that's brilliant. Yeah. I do love yeah. that. It, it is a beautiful <laughs> progression there, but the, the character, my recollection is that the character is never developed. Yeah. But I mean, here in the in the first book of the series, we spend time developing these two potentially complex, potentially, you know, rich characters for no other purpose than to show how neatly we can kill them. I don't know, maybe that was intentional. I mean, if you establish in the first book, you know, George R.R. R. Martin style that no one is safe, it increases the stakes for your beloved character for subsequent books. Maybe. I don't know. It seemed <laughs> contrary to the, the rules. And again, we haven't talked about the afterward yet, but yeah. uh, there were rules to participate in, in Thieves' World, and one of the yes. rules was supposed to be no killing off other people's characters. Yes. Okay, so Aspen killed off his own character. Yeah. Right. But um, Joe... Heckelman? Haldeman. 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 Haldeman of, of the Forever War. Oh. That's where you know Joe Haldeman from. That is. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, I don't believe that One Thumb was his character. I don't know. Maybe it was. But again, his, it was mentioned in other stories. I think personally it would be more interesting if you didn't kill off your own characters. You only killed off other people's characters. But you had to get permission first. Yeah, if they gave you permission to kill them, that would yeah. be fine. Yeah. yeah. But so then it's like, okay, I've created this character. It's like, well, I have a death for them. And if you approve, this is what I have in mind. It's like, oh, yeah, you got to do that. Yeah, but maybe you wait until the third book to do it. <laughs> Give other people time to play with the character before we... But otherwise, unless you have multiple stories, you can't you can't kill off your own character unless you do it within the context of the story where you introduce them. Yeah, so... Well, they have to come back at some point, right? I mean, yeah. part, part of the principle here is that there would be, you know, continuing characters in this yeah. continuing world. So yeah, it could be a failure of the way they set up the rules. I did, I did, I have very few highlights on this story, but one thing I have highlighted is hoopalond, which is a, which is a type of garment. It's a big shirt with flowy sleeves. I just love the sound <laughs> of that word, hoopalond. Hoopalond. I uh, also forgot to mention uh, in the Paul Anderson story, the word theomachy, which is a war against the gods. That's just a great addition to your vocabulary. Highlights with me. Yeah. <laughs> Theomachy. Yep. Yeah. Got to remember that one. Murtis by Christine DeWeese. I remember liking this one. Yeah, I liked this one. This was about the brothels and the brothel owners. And we do meet an interesting character who I don't remember at all. I mean, I didn't remember at all from previous readings. Murtis? Murtis? I'm going to go with Murtis. That was a fun story. It was, it was interesting to look at the brothels as a power base. Yes, that was interesting. This is the story. This is the story where the um, the hellhounds are gonna uh, sort of clean up the brothels, and and uh, mm -hmm. and and Merce explains the reality of the situation to him. It's like if you clean up the brothels, you have no defense in your tunnels against invasion. Yep. Yeah, these tunnels that you didn't know were there. Yeah, we we take care <laughs> of those. That was brilliant. Yep, brilliant. That's a, this is actually the opposite of sort of the Aspen story at the beginning. It's a great example of, a, of incredible world building and exposition that comes out of conflict and has a resolution for a conflict. Uh, it's like you learn something about the town, which is fascinating, yep. but you only learn in the context of this conflict. Yeah. So that's really well done. Bringing us to the last story in this book, uh, The Secret of the Blue Star by Marion Zimmer Bradley, which I thought was one of the better stories I, My favorite. Your favorite. Uh, my favorite of these, which which makes me sad because it turns <laughs> out that Marion Zimmer Bradley is a bad person. 
which we don't have to talk about here. No, but that doesn't mean she can't be on occasion a good writer. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. We should distinguish between the between the art and the person, as we have in the past. Um, early sentence I highlighted here, uh, just because it can be relevant to our our uh, next episode. Uh, she talks about uh, a gaggle of desert rats, two legged rats with poison steel teeth. Mm-hmm. So. Hint, hint, hint. Hint, hint. <laughs> but yeah, we get a really good look at Lethandy? Lethand? Not quite sure how I would pronounce his name. Um, who, again, we, we have brushed up against several times at this point. You know, he's been a background character in, I think, three, two or three of the other stories, both as a, as a target of a little bit of awe and a target of disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you're talking about, this is this is a somebody who has sacrificed and is sacrificing to obtain arcane powers, yes. um, and may in fact turn out to be someone to be reckoned with, which he does, she does. Yeah, spoiler here. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that uh, in that order, the the order of the blue star, um, their power depended on preserving a secret, and I love the fact, although one would think. Luthand is probably not the first person to come up with it. She has fabricated a false secret mm. to, you know, protect the real secret. Yeah. Always a great strategy. Yep. And it seems like maybe you would, you know, just as a matter of course, take that two or three steps, which could be exhausting. But, <laughs> you know, at some point, maybe your enemies would just give up. It's like, all right, fine. Yeah. Keep your secret. Uh, the only highlight I have on this story uh, is a lovely turn of phrase. Uh, the place is called, in irony, the promise of heaven. In sanctuary as elsewhere, it is well known that those who promise do not always perform. The very cynical take on the name, the promise of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> but I enjoyed that. And then that wraps it up. We have an essay by Robert Lynn Asprin about how Thieves' World evolved, came into being, and his, how his role grew. And that was just a really fun read, too. It was. It was tempestuous. Well, literally, it was a dark and stormy night, he says. Yep. But, uh, but it, was a, it was a struggle, uh, you know, getting, I can imagine, well, I don't even have to imagine, he talks about it in great detail, but uh, how stressful it must have been for him as, as a fairly new uh, beginning writer to be de- dealing with these marquee names, a lot of them, and having them say, yes, I'll contribute to storage here anthology, and then not delivering. Yep. Wow. You know, having, <laughs> having no history, no leverage with these people to try and cajole them or yeah. coerce them. You know, and, and he's going on the strength of, I talked to you in a hallway once at a convention. Yes. It's like, yeah. oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, they were being polite. But, hey, it or worked. Even if they weren't being polite, they were caught up in the moment. It's like, yeah, that sounds fun, but, you know, I have to write this novel first. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I'm impressed with the I'm impressed with the names that he did get. I mean, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Joe Haldeman, John Brunner, Paul Anderson. These were big, big names at the time. Uh, so, so the fact that he got them uh, is really a testament to his uh, doggedness and enthusiasm for the idea and just selling it. Uh, so good for him. Yeah. yeah, and again, this this ran for twelve volumes. Yes, um, before he gave up the ghost on that one. And I think once you get the first one out, then people can look at it and go, aha, that's a known thing now. Right. It's got momentum. I know what I'm dealing with. But the first one, the very first one where someone says, I have this shared world idea. It's going to be great, guys. It's going to be amazing. That's a tougher sell. I tried briefly. I was on a small writing forum that was basically fanfic for a uh, tank simulation. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but I tried to get one of these up and running. Yeah. Um, 
couldn't actually explain the idea <laughs> adequately enough, you know, so it, it never got any traction. Um, I wrote three short stories and, you know, set up three characters in three locations, and then it simply never well, went anywhere. you know, so. his pitch is pretty good. He says, you know, uh, and it's interesting that he sets up a character only to kill him off in the same story. But his pitch is that it's so frustrating when you have an idea for a story and then you have to do all the world building to set yep. up that and then you just tear it all down again at the end because it's one story. What if you could share that effort of the world building and the characters and the da-da-da? So you didn't have to do all that work every time. Yep. Uh, and in a way, this is uh, this is RPGs at their heart, right? Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned Dungeons & Dragons earlier. Dungeons & Dragons is a shared world. You know, I mean, it's yeah. you know, you're making your own maps, perhaps, and, and populating it with your own NPCs. But, you know, all yeah. of the rules are there. Yes. You just have to fill in the blanks you want to fill in. And voila, you've got a campaign. Yes. Right? So in a way, this is the same. Yeah, so it's a it's a great and noble project, uh, and I'm I'm glad it had the success that it had. But I'm not tempted to read any further <laughs> in the Thieves World series. Uh, but this this was amusing to read more for the idea than for the stories themselves. I would say. Yep. Yeah. And again, there's uh, if you persisted, if you were to persist in, in yeah. reading the others, um, you know, there is structure, there is story arc that spans yeah. across volumes, and, oh, and there is development of the characters. The development is sometimes frustrating and in unpredictable and unlikely directions. Um, <laughs> but there, there is an evolution. There's a there can be nothing but evolution to yeah. to the things as they move forward. Uh, but you say the second book is the high point of the series, so that does not. That's my recollection. Well. <laughs> yeah, that's my recollection. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll go take a look at who else contributed to later later volumes. That might that might pull me in, tempt me. Anyway, might be fun to look and see. There might yeah. be some some surprising names that get attached to it at some point. Again, I was really surprised with the names that were in this book. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Um, yeah, these worlds. <laughs> <laughs> World of Thieves. I don't know. Sounds like a like a Disneyland. Shared world, yeah. shared world anthologies are hit or miss, and I think this one is mostly a miss. But they're still fascinating. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So, what have we got coming up next? Coming up next, a riffing off of the thief theme uh, is the Stainless Steel Rat by Harry Harrison. Oh, it's been so long. <laughs> it's been a long, long time. All right. Well, we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>